0: To be raised again, so Lord, that we can be made right, and that we could be in Your family, God. We thank You so much. We, um, Lord, lift up this time that we have together, and also this season, that it be always the reminder of what You've done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Amen. Let's stand as we continue in worship. On Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth good. chance of life of peace on earth good will to men. and in despair I bow my head there is no peace on earth I send
0: time to look at uh, our memory verse for the month. This will be our final time, I believe, in John 1, 14. And so let's recite it. We'll talk briefly about the last three words, and then we'll pray. All right, so out loud, let's run through it. You ready? Yes, fantastic. Here we go. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. Advent, Christ's coming. He's coming again. That hymn we just sung, beautiful words, that he is full of grace and truth. Christ came as humbly as possible. He came, was born a child in a food trough. He lived in his ministry. He was penniless, didn't have a home, had nothing to his name. The guards, the soldiers cast lots for the one bit of clothing he had while he was hanging on the cross full of grace and truth to pay every bit of the sin of you and me. What a reason to rejoice that in this first advent as Christ has come, that every sin has been laid upon him. That he didn't come with a measure of grace, a measure of truth in being God. He had infinite and is full of infinite grace. So that as he returns, as he will come back, not, not near as humble as he came the first but he will come back as a conquering king. Faith will be removed. Right now it is impossible to please God without faith, but he will come and it will be vividly clear. He is the Lord. He is the creator. He is the God of all things. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, Lord, you have sent your Son to be the Savior of the world, that the Word became flesh. The Son, the the Creator who spoke all things into existence, who ordered and made and sustains that He has become like us yet without sin. Father, would you help us this morning? May our attentions be turned to you as this season is often consuming in the things that we need to get done, that that we we have to accomplish and wrap and prepare and organize before the deadline. Lord, may may we not be consumed by those things, but in this moment, God, would you draw our attention, our affection to you, that we would see you as you are. When you should have sent another flood to destroy us, you instead sent your Son. Where your judgment warrants that our sin, every bit of it, would be held to account, that you came and put one of infinite value infinite worth the lord himself you you placed him in our stead to take the judgment we deserve and that we are due and it's impending for those who reject christ and so lord may we see may we see christ high and lifted up this morning that he being full of grace and truth that he shares his grace with those who are unworthy with me with others here. God, would you draw our attention this morning to see you, to recognize this day as the day of salvation and that you have appointed, that as your gospel is known and goes out, that we would be convicted and bring our lives underneath the authority and the cross of Christ. That, Lord, we would not treat today as coming tomorrow, that there'll be another, but Lord, may may we hear the sense of urgency of what you have done, that the day is coming you'll return, Lord Jesus. You'll return with heaven's armies, and you will bring to fruition what has been promised, what has been foretold, and what we can expect, that you will take your people to be with you, and then you'll bring judgment, and you will right all the wrongs that we see and we live in. So God, would you, would you help us this morning, draw us to see you and to rejoice in you that you are the Lord of all creation and that you've sustained us today. You've been our help and you've brought us here, Lord. We ask the Lord you to, you to speak in these next few minutes that your word would be clear and that God, we would, we would know what you mean and we'd be brought
2: to repentance. In
0: Jesus' name we pray,
2: amen. Church family, let me invite you to take God's word and join me in Matthew's gospel again. Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. That's where we'll be together this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. Just a brief reminder of what we have seen in recent weeks together. Just Matthew's telling of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were here with us last week, we were in verses 1 through 8. We saw together three truths. Uh, that the arrival of Jesus means for humanity. And so, as we're introduced to these magi who come to visit, to worship the Lord Jesus, we're finding in their arrival that Jesus is the blessing of the nations. Uh, You recall the promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 that Abraham, through you, through your descendants, all the families of the earth, all the nations will be blessed. And as these magi, these Gentile people from the east as they come to worship, we're finding there the fulfillment of that ancient, ancient promise in Christ as the blessing to the nation. Secondly, we saw last week as we were introduced to King Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, we saw together that the arrival of Jesus, it means trouble for the pride-filled Heart, Wherever King Jesus comes, wherever the message of salvation through him comes, wherever the reality of Jesus as the king of his kingdom, wherever that comes, it necessarily then means trouble. And it's a good kind of trouble, but it is a trouble for the prideful heart. And then last week there in the text that we saw together, we see that in verse 6, That Jesus, his arrival means that the better ruler, the better king, and the better shepherd has come for his people, right? And we thought through how all of the kings of Israel and all of the shepherds who failed in their duties, they're causing the people, they're calling us to cry out, when will a better king come? When will the better shepherd arrive? And in Jesus, our better ruler and shepherd has come. And so we pick up the text this morning, verses 9 to 15. We sort of pick up the story again with the Magi and their visit uh, to where Jesus is. We see their response to the one who is born king of the Jews. Their searching and their following has led them to Jerusalem, then to Bethlehem, where they will see the king of the Jews. They come in humble worship. They come giving opulent gifts. And then there's a contrast in the text for us this morning. We see again wicked King Herod. We see him as the fraud on Israel's throne. We find out that he doesn't really intend on worshiping Jesus. What he intends is on destroying Jesus. So there's a contrast there for us this morning, and as we see Herod bloodthirsty, as we see him in jealous rage seeking to destroy the rightful king of the Jews, we find in the text the links to which God goes to preserve the life of the Messiah until such a time when Jesus would lay down his life for the sins of. And so as we're thinking about the text this morning, just continuing in the story, I want to draw out two main aspects for us. In verses 9 to 12, I want us to see together the praise that is offered to the Messiah, the praise of the Messiah. And then in verses 13 to 15, God's preservation of the Messiah. So let's look at the text together. Chapter 2, start reading with me in verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt he remained there until the death of Herod this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the lord through the prophet out of egypt i called my son let's look firstly together verses 9 verses 9 to 11 and we see here together the messiah's praise the magi continuing in their quest to find out who is this one who has been born king of the Jews. In verse 9, After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. You recall that Herod met with them in verses 7 and 8 and said, hey, when you find the child, come back and tell me, for I too want to go and worship him. So after that meeting, they resume their journey and in verse 9 we find that the star which they had seen in the east it went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was there's been much discussion many questions asked about the nature of this star is it an actual star is it a comet is it a grouping of planets is it uh, the the glory of god being displayed in the heavens scripture doesn't say much about this star we have written a lot of maybe songs about the star. We've spent a lot of time and energy regarding the star. But scripture just simply says that there is a star in the sky. The magi, when they were back in the east, they saw the star signaling the birth of the king of the Jews. And so they begin their probably months-long journey westward to find the one whose birth was signaled by this star. Do they see the star throughout the journey? We don't know. Does it move as they move? We, we don't exactly know. Scripture does not say. However, in verse 9, once they arrive in Jerusalem, the star is shining, and then it goes on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. There's a lot we don't know about the star, about the leading in this moment. However, we do know that God, God who has created that star, he directs it. He moves it and causes it to guide the Magi to Bethlehem so that they might come and see the one who has been born, the King of the Jews. That they might come, that they might give the Messiah, the King, the praise that He is due. John Piper has said about this in a sermon that God wills the universe to make His Son known and worshipped. That celestial light in the sky, it is pointing the magi to the one who is, in fact, the John eight twelve light of the world. As the magi see this, they are being pointed to the one who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, as 1 John 1-5 tells us. And after seeing that star in verse 9, what is their response in verse 10? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and I think a lot of questions arrive about the magi at this point we thought through just a bit together last week who are these guys and from where do they come and what exactly do they believe and and so many of those questions are left unanswered for us and we're in this moment in verse 10 as we see them rejoicing exceedingly with great joy we wonder are they true worshipers having forsaken all other gods to come and worship the one true and living God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Are they rejoicing in verse 10 simply because they've been directed to the Savior and their long journey is now over? Again, there's a lot that we don't know about why they are there and what they understand and their hearts and the place that this worship is coming from. But what we do know is enough to instruct us on who Jesus is and what our response should be to him. How do they worship upon coming to the Messiah in verse 10? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, church, this is no small celebration in that moment. They rejoiced, not in a half-hearted way, but in an exuberant manner. They rejoiced. They are glad. They offer glad tidings. They rejoiced exceedingly, excessively, the word means. There's a nuance to the word where it even means violently. Not that they committed acts of violence, but there was a, a passion in them that's stirring from the very fiber and the core of their being, just from the gut, they are praising with this excessive praise. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy, with great delight, with great happiness for who it is that lies before them. Again, do the Magi fully understand who Jesus is and what it is that he came to do? We don't know. We don't know. But here's what we do know. As we think about their response in verse 10, even down into verse 11 with the giving of gifts, while we may not know all that they knew, while we don't fully know their theology and their understanding of the scriptures and all of those things, as we seek to respond to this ourselves, here's what we do know. We know, church, that we, sitting here today, that we have God's full revelation of who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus came to do. And so for you and I, for you and I, there ought to be an excessive gladness in our hearts in this moment. Church, there ought to be an ongoing, timeless, never-growing faint, excessive joy in us for who Jesus is and what it is that he came to do. If you are in Christ this morning The joy of the Lord is being produced in you by the work of His Spirit. And so no matter your lots, you can sing what's. It is well with my soul. As you commune with the Lord, there is a great joy that ought to be produced in you. As you open up God's Word, and as you pray, and as you sing, and as you commune and fellowship with God, there ought to be an ongoing excessive joy in your souls. When you open up the Word of God, His Word in Psalm 1-2 is intended to produce delight and joy in us. As we come into his presence by his word and and prayer, Psalm 1611 reminds us that in his presence there is a fullness of joy. When we sing together, whether it be in this room or throughout our week, we are called to sing for joy to the Lord in Psalm 95 and verse 1. Even as we give our gifts to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9 reminds us that there is a call upon us to be cheerful, glad, joy-filled givers unto God. Beloved, I would just have us to recall in this moment that joy is not merely meant to be an expression of the season. It is to be an ongoing reality in our hearts. And one of the ways that we cultivate joy in us is that we're consistently reminding ourselves of who God is and what He has done for sinners such as you and I through Christ. We remember that we were dead in our sins. We remember that we were spiritual orphans. We remember that we had nothing and that we were in fact children under God's wrath. But we remember that Christ has come. He has come to lay down His life. He has come to make peace between holy God and sinful man. He has come to make us alive from that death in our sin. He has come to make us the children of God. He has come to move us from being objects of His wrath to being objects of His grace and His mercy. And when we remember what God has done for us in Christ, there can then only be one response, right? To rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Beloved, in your heart this morning, is there a deep and abiding gladness in God this morning? Not, are you happy this morning? That's not the question. It's never really the question. Because even in our sorrow, even in our sadness, the Spirit continues to work joy and gladness in God in our hearts. The question this morning, is there a deep and abiding gladness in God this morning? Not a passing, not a temporary tingly sort of feeling when we sing it is well, but is there a deep, abiding, contentment, gladness in God? who he is for what he has done for you in Christ when they saw the star what did they know I don't know but they didn't know as much as we know they didn't have as much as we have they weren't on this side of the cross and the empty tomb here we are so then may it produce an abiding gladness and joy in us they continued to respond in worship and praise to the Messiah. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Not only is there praise to the Messiah filled with great joy, but it is here marked in verse 11 by great humility. They come into the house Jesus and Mary and Joseph are no longer in Bethlehem's stable. They have moved to a house. Again, we know very little about these movements and these moments. Again, very, very, very unlikely that the Magi arrived the night of, uh, the, that Christ was born. It's likely many months after the birth of Jesus. They come into the house, and there is Mary. There is the child with her, and they see him in verse 11. And what is their response? They fell to the ground and worshipped him. That they fell to the ground means that they come in and they lay prostrate on the ground before Jesus. They give him the adoration and the worship that he is rightly due. Do they fully recognize in this moment that this child is incarnate God? Again, we don't know fully what they understand, but they know that he's a king. They know that, and so they humble themselves. They lay themselves down on the ground before the one that they recognize is greater than they. And again, in this moment, just as we saw last Sunday, it's not merely that some mysterious magi from the east show up and do a little worship and present a few gifts and then they go home and we never hear from them again. There's there's more happening in this moment church. Because in this moment the nations are being brought before King Jesus for he is The blessing to all the families of the earth and as the nations, if you will, as they come before him, they rightly give him the humble adoration that he is due and in this moment of humble worship, we see the fulfillment. Of so many of the passages in the Psalms that call all the world, all the peoples, all the nations to come before God in worship. Places like Psalm 66 and verse 4. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Or Psalm 67 verses 3 and 4. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 86 and verse 9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. But not only are passages like in the Psalms being fulfilled in this moment, but with these Gentile magi bowing before King Jesus, we get a brief glimpse, just a brief momentary foretaste of what we later read in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. When the elders and the creatures bow before the throne and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And in this moment as the magi prostrate themselves on the ground before King Jesus we get a brief glimpse of passages like Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11 Therefore in light of his humility and what he did on the cross therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, Jesus, the baby in the manger, the child in the house, with Mary, the one who would live a sinless life, the one who would go to the cross and die to be raised from the dead, the one who ascended back to the Father, the one who sits at the right hand of God ever interceding for us, the one who is one day coming back for us. He is the King, I tell you. He is the king over a glorious and eternal kingdom. And because of who he is, he deserves our humble praise. He deserves our lives lived out in daily humility before him. And so church, if Jesus is the king, then he must be the greatest reality and priority in our lives. If Jesus is the king, then we spend our days bowing ourselves low so that he might be raised high. If Jesus is the king, then we do not angle our speech on a daily basis with certain people so that they think well of us and so that we look good in their eyes, but we speak and we angle our conversation so that they see Jesus and Jesus gets raised high in their eyes. If Jesus is the king, then church family, we do not serve so that people will think well of us. We serve so that they might see our good works and do what? Glorify our Father who is in heaven. If Jesus is the King, then we don't care if people even know our name. And Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 8 becomes the desire of our hearts. Your name, even your renown, O God is the desire of our souls. Church, if Jesus is the king, then we must use our resources, our lives, everything about us to worship him and make his name known. As we think about Christmas, as we're celebrating all that we're celebrating, it's not just a baby in a manger. It's not just a child on Mary's lap. the King of kings and the Lord of lords who demands gloriously so rightly so everything from us. They come into the house and they fell to the ground and worshipped Him, but their praise of the Messiah is not done. Look at the end of verse 11. They open their treasures and they present to Him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Again, much has been made of these gifts and what they do or do not symbolize or point to about Jesus. The point of of the gifts is to remind us primarily that Jesus is the king for these are gifts that only a king receives. Again, what do these magi know about Jesus? When they're getting these gifts together back in the east, back at home, what, what are they thinking about? This one who is being born king of the Jews, again, we don't know. They just know he's a king, and so they bring kingly gifts, costly gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, most certainly, the metal of the kings. Frankincense, this valuable resin meticulously drawn from the bark of certain trees. Myrrh, a very costly, precious spice. They come into the house and they open their boxes and they begin to present these gifts. What a moment that must have been as this child is not just a child in their eyes. He is the King. This is Jesus. This child is incarnate God. And only the most precious and most choice of costly gifts will suffice as a way to honor Him, to bless Him, to worship Him. Church, never forget this this time of the year, moving into... The new year, every moment of your life, never forget that in Jesus, the Messiah, the King, has been born. He left heaven. He came to save His people from their sins. He came to die. He came to bear the wrath of God rightly reserved for you. He came to take your cup and to drink it down to the dregs. So then all praise, all joyful, humble adoration is due unto Him. Every moment of our lives. Ask your heart this morning, is my life and my praise, is it dominated by a contented joy and gladness in God through Christ? Ask yourself this morning, is the posture of my life to lay myself low so that Jesus might be raised high? Does King Jesus get the very best of your praise, your time, your offerings, your life? He is certainly worth it. And then secondly, verses 12 to 15, second aspect here. Not only do we see that of the Messiah's praise, but here in these latter verses, the Messiah's preservation. For not everyone seeks to honor him as the king that he is. And so we find here the links to which God goes to preserve his son. Verse 12, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, The Magi left for their own country by another way. If you've never read the story before, you read verse 12 and you begin to sense that something's not quite right. For all of the angelic proclamation, for all of the worship and praise that has been given unto Jesus, you begin to understand in verse 12 that not everyone is excited that the King has come. So the Magi are warned by God, don't, don't go back to Herod. I know he told you previously to come back to let him know. Maybe you even said you would, but don't go back. So he leads them another way and they go back home to the east. And look what happens in verse 13. When they had gone, behold, an, an angel of the Lord, another messenger of God, appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Herod's words from verse 8, that he intended to worship the child, they are now proven to be a lie. And in fact, it's, it's a little more sinister. It's a lot more sinister than that. He has zero intent on worship and every intent on destroying, utterly killing, going to whatever length he must go. And we'll see in the, the latter verses of this chapter the lengths to which Herod goes to exterminate the life of the child Jesus. Herod's intent is to destroy, to blot out the name and the memory of the birth of Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so then we place this into the greater context of Scripture. And when we do so, we begin to understand that since the opening pages of the Bible, we know that the Christ would be hated and that even Satan himself would attempt to destroy him. You recall. What God would say in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, what he would say to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. And then when you just continue reading throughout the rest of the Old Testament, moving into this moment in Matthew 2, how many moments, How many attempts were made to wipe out the people of God, to destroy the redemptive plan of God, and to stop the birth and the work of the Messiah. I want to even suggest to us this morning that your nativity scenes at home, they they may not be quite accurate. And it I know I did this last week, and I've sort of ruined Christmas for everybody. I'm really sorry. But uh, to do that again for a moment, this has nothing to do about the magi and and their placement. I want to suggest, though, that your nativity scene might be incomplete, unless you have a dragon there at the nativity scene. And now some of you are wondering, why did I vote yes for this guy? Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, even on the very night of Jesus' birth, Satan would be there seeking to bruise the heel, seeking to destroy, to take the life of Christ. In the months that would follow, through Herod, seeking to destroy the Redeemer. In Revelation 12, as John is seeing this revelation from the Lord of things that are to come, in chapter 12, there is a moment for John where he gets to see a moment that has already been. Pick up with me in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars most generally here thinking about the nation of Israel, most specifically thinking about Mary. Verse 2, she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron? And her child was called up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. No doubts, then, Jesus, in Isaiah 53 and verse 3, would indeed be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. For from the very moment of his birth, the great dragon and all the host of hell would labor and work to destroy, to cause people to hate, to view him as a threat, and to seek after his very life, however God Sovereign God who knows all things perfectly well. He is already one step ahead of Herod. He is one step ahead and he begins the process of removing Jesus from harm's way by sending Jesus and his family to safety in Egypt. Church, God is in absolute sovereign control over his plan of redemption. This is the plan of redemption wrought in God's heart from eternity past through thousands of years of world and biblical history. God has been weaving this plan together and Herod for all of his raging will not overthrow God's salvation plan. God has delivered and rescued his people time and time and time again to preserve the life of the coming Redeemer. God has orchestrated people in places at the right time to ensure that the tide of history is ever moving toward the redemption of all things in Christ. God has been moving and working and shaping so that at the fullness of time, God would send forth his son to be born of a woman born under the law in order that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons, Galatians 4 tells us. And so Herod, Herod is not going to get in the way of this. Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 to 4 was written for guys like Herod. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us, they say. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. For all of your cunning, for all of your raging, for all of your hatred, it comes to nothing. It comes to nothing. Because God is going to preserve the life of his anointed one. Joseph, get up. Take the child, take his mother to Egypt. Herod is going to try to kill him. Stay there until I tell you to come back. Verse 14 Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Oh, we love righteous Joseph. This has been quite the ordeal for him. Hey, um, Joseph, I'm, I'm pregnant, Mary would tell him. Joseph, no doubt crushed by that, is going to divorce her quietly. An angel comes, hey, no, Joseph, don't, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. She's not lying. The baby in her womb has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. and So Joseph rises to the occasion there, if you will. And now, in the middle of the night, he is uh, awoken again. Joseph, get up, get the child, get married, you got to get out of town. you got to do this now because Herod wants him dead. A lot has been asked of Joseph, and he responds in obedience every single time. So he gets up, they go to Egypt, verse 15, he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. He stays there until the death of Herod. Herod dies in 4 B.C. We don't know how long Joseph, Jesus, Mary would have been in Egypt. Probably no more than just a matter of months. And all of this happens in verse 15. Why? To fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Matthew here quoting from Hosea. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And in that passage in Hosea 11, Hosea the prophet is reminding God's people that even though they were not always faithful in their love to God, God faithfully loved them. God was bound to them in eternal covenant love, and out of that great love, He called them out of Egypt during the Exodus. Out of His eternal, faithful, covenant love for His people, God calls them out of Egypt way back in the exodus, out of bondage and out of slavery to get them to the land of promise. And now in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15, what are we learning about the exodus? And what in the world does the exodus have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with it. Because Matthew 2 verse 15 shows us that the exodus ultimately was pointing us to the coming of the Son of God. Just as God's Son, Israel, was called out of Egypt, so too God's Son, Jesus Christ, is called out of Egypt. By bringing Israel's greater Son, Jesus, out of Egypt, God inaugurates, oh, if you will, a new exodus. A new exodus whereby through his son Jesus, God's people are brought out of their bondage to sin, out of their slavery to sin, and made his covenant people through the blood of Christ. God preserves the life of the Messiah in Egypt and then brings his son out of Egypt so that his son would be the better deliverer. The better mediator for a people bound in their chains of sin. Jesus' life is preserved so that he would then, at the right time, be able to go to the cross and to die there as the deliverer, as the redeemer, the rescuer, the reconciler for his people's sins church family, Jesus is the Messiah, not just a baby, not just a sort of a necessary part of the story, not just somebody we focus on at the high points of the calendar year, but Jesus is the King. He's the King. He's the eternal King. He is the promise to David of an eternal kingdom. And so, church, as the King, He is worthy of all of our joy-filled, humble praise. Does He have His rightful place in your life? Do you only view Him as a nice part of the story? Or is He the sovereign King of your life? God preserved the life of of his chosen anointed one so that he would then be able to go to the cross and pay the penalty for sin. God preserves his glorious plan of redemption through his son, Jesus. And so friends, hear me. If you're here today, and you do not know Christ as Savior, you need to know, you need to understand in that preserving work of God that there is no other Savior. There will be no other Savior. It is Christ and Christ alone. God goes to the lengths to which He goes to preserve the life of Christ because He is God's anointed Savior. You know him today? Have you turned from your sins? Have you come by faith to Christ? It is not too late. It matters not what you have done. Cease your striving. Cease, stop your efforts to make yourself right with God on your own and come by faith to Christ. He's a good kind, generous, benevolent King. He will love you. He will receive you. And dear friend, He will take you safely home. All of us are called here to respond. How? How do you need to respond to these things? Let's pray together and begin doing that this morning. Father, over and over in these opening verses of Matthew's gospel account, we're confronted with the reality that Jesus is the King. He is the King and there is no other. He is the Savior. There will not be another. He is your anointed one and nothing else will do. For the church this morning, God, there is a call here for us to orient our understanding of Christ to what we see in Your Word and to respond accordingly. Not to give unto You through Your Son half-hearted, blasé, fair kind of worship. God, the kind of worship that overflows with an excessive amount of contented joy for who you are and what you've done. A worship that bows ourselves low, gets ourselves out of the way so that Christ might be lifted up and shown as glorious. Father, in the room, for those here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would open their eyes to see, to understand that Jesus is more than just a nice part of the Christmas story. But everything in Scripture is screaming out to us and finding its fulfillment in this preserved Messiah, Jesus Christ. Oh, God, would you draw their wayward hearts to you? God, you are kind and good. Jesus is indeed a friend of sinners. God, open their eyes so that they might behold King Jesus for who he is and that they they might respond in faith to him this Lord's day. God, thank you so much for the coming of Christ. I thank you for what is true for us because he came for us. God, we confess that we could not have done this. God, that you had to do it. And you've done it through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.